Welcome to the first episode of The Voice of Oregon Workers, a brand new podcast from the Oregon AFL-CIO. For those out there who are unfamiliar with the Oregon AFL-CIO, we are a statewide federation of labor unions in Oregon. We represent about 300,000 workers in Oregon through our affiliated unions and our community affiliate, Working America. Our affiliated members are everywhere, at grocery stores, hospitals, schools, manufacturing plants, construction sites, and beyond. My name is Tom Chamberlain, and I'm proud to serve as president of the Oregon AFL-CIO. I'm a retired firefighter and spent my life fighting for workers. Our federation holds a simple but powerful belief. Working people are stronger when we stand together and speak up. Standing together and speaking up takes courage. But sometimes all it takes is inspiration and the idea that if someone else can do it, you can do it too. Unions run on that idea. That's why union members step up to become leaders in our workplaces and communities. As unions, it is our duty to do everything we can to inspire and activate working people to become advocates and leaders. Our goal with the voice of Oregon workers is to inspire our listeners to stand up together for change. Whether it's through a union, through politics, or through work in the community, inspiration to take action to make things better can take many forms. We'll take a closer look at the workers and organizations who are changing the landscape of Oregon's union movement, politics, and economy. Unions are growing, changing, and adapting to the economy and to the political climate in amazing ways. Our work as Oregon's union movement presents us with a unique view of this rising tide that I'm proud to share with you. If you enjoy what you hear today, please share this podcast with your friends and family. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voice of Oregon's Workers, the new podcast of the Oregon AFL-CIO. My name is Graham Trainer, and I'm the Chief of Staff at the Oregon AFL-CIO, the Statewide Federation of Labor Unions, and a voice for all Oregon workers. We're excited to kick off our very first podcast and provide yet another medium to highlight the important work being done in Oregon and around the country fighting to make the lives of working people better. Each month, we'll strive to have engaging, inspiring interviews that dive into different struggles for social and economic justice. And for our first episode, we're so lucky to have two incredible leaders here to kick things off and dive into the history and meaning of May Day, also known as International Workers' Day, that is just right around the corner next week. So we've got a lot to cover, so let's just dive right in. I'd like to introduce our guests. We have with us Andrea Williams, who is the Executive Director of CAUSA, and Raina Lopez, the new Executive Director of PACUN, uh, who are two leaders of important immigrant rights organizations and partners right here in Oregon. And I'd like to just have uh, both of our uh, guests please just in, uh, introduce themselves, talk about their respective organizations, the mission, their focus of the current work, um, and we can start with Ant- uh, with Raina. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for that great introduction. I'm Reina Lopez. I'm the Executive Director at PECUN, Pineros in Campesinos Unidos del Noroeste, which stands for Tree Planters and Farm Workers of the Northwest. Um, we are a union uh, led by farm workers and low-wage Latinx workers. Um, we actually started in 1985, which that, that's the year right before I was born. Um, and... I was born actually in 1986 in uh, Santa Ana, California. Um, Both my parents are from Mexico. Um, 
My dad is from the south part of Mexico, so there's actually a lot of folks from Michoacan in this area, um, and a lot of folks who came up here following the migration of the farm work, um, which my dad wa was also following the migration, um, and then my mom is from the northern part of Mexico, from Hermosillo, Sonora, um, and you know they came up here. Um, they worked in the fields in Santa Ana and. Um, eventually heard that there was uh, some work up in Oregon uh, tree planting in the Christmas tree industry and so my dad brought us up here on a on an adventure myself my younger sister Lily and my my mom um, and we settled in Salem Oregon in Northeast Salem and back in those days apparently we were we we were some of the first Latino families in our in our neighborhood um, and the community has just grown so much in the past 30 years. It's amazing to see how vibrant and how much it's grown and how much progress we've made and how much uh, things sometimes stay the same too. But um, I think that that's why we're here. That's, a, that's why we, we still have jobs. <laughs> um, and um, I really grew up in a street where, where actually that whole street was my family. Uh, all my cousins, all my relatives on my dad's side were here, and um, and I really did see a lot of struggles in my life growing up that really led me to this day today. Um, and just working uh, with Pekun today, it all comes full circle. My dad was a part of the Pick Sweets uh, fight back in when we had that strike against the Pick Sweets. My mom has been a farm worker. She still works out at, at a farm in Dallas, Oregon today. Um, and I just really see my myself and my family in the in the members of Pekun. And Pekun really got its its wings when Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta were coming up here, getting farm workers empowered, excited about being able to make a difference in their lives. And Pekun's mission is to empower farm workers against exploitation and take action against exploitation and all of its effects. So we've done that in several different ways. Um, you know, there's the historic boycotts and the strikes and the rallies and the marches, but it's not the only thing we do. We do policy work, um, which we do it nationally and locally. Um, right now, some of our, our big issues that we're working on are around um, protecting workers against pesticides, toxic pesticides that um, are killing farm workers, uh, shortening our life expectancy um, against um, uh, wages and making sure that folks are, are getting the wages that they deserve, the wages that they worked hard for, um, making sure that uh, through ending wage theft we're also looking at how to protect farm worker women against sexual violence. Um, and we're doing lots of coalition work with our friends over at the AFL, our friends all over the state um, on paid family leave, housing, the Fair Shot Coalition, uh, shout out to Fair Shot, um, and community organizing, worker organizing, as well as electoral organizing. In fact, um, you know, we're on the doors right now talking to folks about the primaries, but we're also uh, able to shift into May Day. And um, as you know, our families are a mixed status. So when we're knocking on those Latinx doors, it's really awesome to be able to say, even though you can't vote, um, you can come to this event and you can engage and this is for you. And 
that is just something that is, I think is really unique to our organizations, to Kausa and Pekun, and um, in addition to the fact that we're also sister organizations, we're part of a network of nine sister organizations that focus on empowering the Latinx community of Oregon. Um, and we all fill kind of different niches in the community. Pekun really focuses on workers, but um, I'll go ahead and hand it off to Kausa to talk a little more about the amazing work that they do. Thanks, Reina. And I only thought it was appropriate for Reina to start because Pekun actually uh, was one of the main founders of Kausa. Um, Kausa was founded in 1995, so 10 years after Pekun, and a group of immigrants and allies and farm workers and community members came together <coughs> because um, immigrant families were under attack at the ballot. So over and over again, uh, we came together at first as a coalition. It was Causa 1995, Causa 1996, and then we decided we needed to stick around for the long haul because defending and advancing immigrant rights is really a, a long-term struggle. And so um, we were founded un under that environment, much like Basic Rights Oregon, who was battling anti-LGBTQ ballot measures at the time as well. And so CAUSA's really main focal point has been defending and advancing immigrant rights, uh, broad, broadly speaking, um, in Oregon and then as it relates to immigration reform nationally. And so over the years, uh, we've been able to convert ourselves from just being on the defense all the time to actually getting to a place where we could be on the offense. So looking at how can Oregon pass legislation to be an inclusive state for all, regardless of citizenship status. And so for that reason, CAUSA has been very involved in both economic justice issues like increasing the minimum wage and paid sick leave, but also issues that are very um, direct on the local immigrant and Latino community here issues around um, access to driver licenses, access to higher education, um, being able to have uh, health coverage for undocumented kids, and those types of issues while we continue to wait and battle really um, at the congressional level for relief for our families, not just with DACA, but a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented community members we have nationwide and the about 180,000 undocumented folks um, that we have uh, living here as Oregonians. Um, and so that's been you know, part of the long-term struggle and the long-term work. Great, thank you both. Those were uh, fantastic introductions and a good overview for listeners about the work that your critical organizations do. So um, I would like to just dive right into May Day, uh, also, like I said, known as International Workers' Day. And as folks know, this is a holiday and a, and a celebration with deep roots in American labor history, but it's also celebrated around the world. And I wanted to just start by sharing a brief uh, personal story about my first May Day experience. I moved to Portland, Oregon in, uh, 12 years ago. And uh, prior to my time uh, in Oregon, I didn't even know May Day existed. I had no clue about the origins of May Day. And I remember uh, 12 years ago in 2006, attending my first May Day rally in Portland, uh, downtown Portland. And, um, and I think the things that stick with me are just 
um, you know, being inspired and, um, and impressed by a grassroots immigrant-led day of action. Um, despite the history being rooted in American labor history, obviously there, were, there was a, a big immigrant workforce at the time that was a part of that early struggle, but the fact that it was an immigrant-led um, day of action here in Oregon um, was really impressive and inspiring. And a few years later, I had a chance to uh, attend the first Salem rally and, uh, and again was inspired by the passion and the commitment of the powerful speakers, all the talented organizers that put the event on. Um, and as both uh, Raina and Andrea uh, alluded to, um, just the, the resilience of the immigrant rights community in Oregon, um, given the history of attacks and struggle um, that have been at play in this state for decades. And so um, I just wanted to share that brief story. But I also wanted to talk uh, a little bit about the history. And I'd like to share an overview uh, of, a, of an often untold story about the origins of Mayday. Um, and this is compliments to the Industrial Workers of the World Historical Archives. Um, but in the U.S., um, in the 1860s, working people were just beginning to agitate to shorten the workday. Without a cut in pay, uh, death and injury were commonplace at many workplaces, inspiring a number of books like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. And it wasn't until the late 1880s that organized labor was really able to garner enough strength to declare the eight-hour workday. This happened without consent of employers, of course, at the time, but was demanded by much of the working class. And the labor movement at this time had a significant faction of socialists, anarchists, and communists who believed that the capitalist system should be dismantled because it exploited workers. And uh, additionally, socialism became a new and attractive idea to working people at that time uh, as a way to imagine working class control over the production and the distribution of all goods and services. There were all kinds of socialist organizations that began to spring up in the late half of the 19th century. And uh, like we talk a lot about in Oregon now, getting uh, people of color, getting workers, getting union members elected to office at the time, many socialists actually uh, uh, worked to get elected to office. However, at the time, they also found themselves largely hamstrung by the political process that was so clearly controlled by big business that tens of thousands of socialists broke ranks from their parties and the entire political machine and created anarchist groups across the country. In 1884, the predecessor to the American Federation of Labor, the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, proclaimed the eight-hour workday effective May 1st, 1886, and later affirmed that this proclamation uh, would be backed up by strikes and demonstrations. And uh, I think a telling quote from an anarchist newspaper at the time sums up the misgivings of, the, of, of, of many of the, uh, of the working class at the time about this strategy stating that uh, whether a man works eight hours a day or ten hours a day, he is still a slave. So there was still a lot of uh, skepticism about the eight-hour workday being a solution to the struggles of the working class at the time. And despite this, uh, nearly a quarter million workers in the Chicago area became directly involved in the effort to implement the eight-hour workday. And on May 1st, 1886, more than 300,000 workers and 13,000 businesses across the U.S. walked off their jobs in the first May Day celebration in history. And Chicago prepared for mass bloodshed, and over the course of the next few days, numbers swelled as workers just continued to walk off the job. And they came to hear fiery speeches and participate in direct action, uh, with actually violence breaking out just a couple days later on May 3rd. Um, uh, beatings with police clubs escalated into rock throwing by the strikers, which the police responded to with gunfire. And at least two strikers were killed, and an unknown number were wounded. Um, after this, uh, this um, travesty, uh, a public meeting was called for the, for the following uh, day in Haymarket Square to discuss the police brutality. And there were a number of factors that led to a much smaller turnout that day, um, but initially uh, a rather calm gathering 
um, took place to discuss that police brutality the day before. And um, then police accused a speaker of using inflammatory language and marching on the speaker's wagon. As police began to disperse the crowd, a bomb was thrown into the police ranks that initiated them firing into the crowd with an estimated seven or eight civilians dying and up to 40 wounded. One officer died immediately and another seven died in the following weeks with only one being attributable to the bomb. Following this tragedy, eight anarchists were arrested and convicted of murder even though only three were even present at Haymarket Square. A national wave of xenophobia was set off with radicals and labor organizers being rounded up by police in Chicago and, and across the country. And the jury for this trial was stacked with business leaders and rigged against the anarchists and the organizers. The world watched as these eight organizers were convicted, not for their actions, of which all were innocent, but for their political and social beliefs. On November 11th, 1887, after many failed appeals, four were hung to death and one took his own life the night before in a final protest. The remaining three organizers were pardoned six days later by the Illinois governor who publicly lambasted the judge on a travesty of justice and a bungled trial. Immediately after the Haymarket ma massacre, big business and government conducted what some say was the very first Red Scare in this country. And it was spun by mainstream media that anarchism was synonymous with bomb throwing and socialism became un-American. And today we see tens of thousands of activists and organizers around the world embracing the ideals of the Haymarket martyrs and those who established May Day as an International Workers' Day. Ironically, May Day is an official holiday in 66 countries and unofficially celebrated in many more, but it's not officially recognized in the country where it began. And it's been over 130 years since that first May Day now, but in the uh, in the earlier part of the 20th century, it's important to know that the U.S. government even tried to curb the celebration in this country uh, and further wipe it from the public's memory by establishing a law and order day on the same day, May 1st. So I wanted to share that because it's, uh, you know, in my, in my opinion, it's so important to remember the origins of May Day and what has been sacrificed for the eight-hour workday and so many other workplace protections taken for granted by current generation current generations. And uh, naturally, in today's labor movement, we believe that workers' rights are immigrant rights and immigrant rights are workers' rights. Um, but I'd really love to uh, hear from you both about the meaning and importance of May Day and the Global Day of Action for the immigrant rights communities um, and a little bit about the history of May Day in Oregon. So mm -hmm. who wants to start? Yeah, I can start. Um, so we th May Day really started in, in 2000s. And that's kind of the history that um, that was, has been orally passed on and written in some of our <laughs> in, in our archives. Um, but I believe that it actually shifted from Portland to Salem in 2006. Um, so that was kind of a big moment because we actually stood on the steps of the Capitol. Um, and for me personally, um, and this is Reina Lopez from Pecun. Um, I remember growing up, and this was such a big deal. People would take time off work. Um, don't tell my mom this. We used to skip school to go to May Day. <laughs> um, and it really was the one day out of the year where you felt it was yours and you felt empowered. Um, and I remember one of the most um, compelling May Days for me, probably the day. It, it's a day I will remember for the rest of my life is when I was... Um, I was working for, for Ben Westland when he was a senator, um, and I looked out there, and this was during the big Simpson-Brenner crap that was going on, um, 
And there was so many, there was a sea of people outside. I had never seen so many people there. Um, and I just remember, like, that's probably the most people I've ever seen. There's probably about 10,000 people there. I've never seen that many people being active in Salem. And it was such a shifting moment for me. I was just like, that's power right there. That's people power. It felt so um, real and it felt like we were making a difference. Um, I think that that was actually the moment where I was like, I want to do organizing. I want to be out there with the people and it really has been a day for the most marginalized voices, the most marginalized people in our state, in our country, in the world, to have their voice heard. And when you go to Mayday, you see the families that you forget about. You know, for Woodburn, everybody goes to, to, to the Woodburn outlets and you see these really beautiful stores that are newly remodeled but you don't see the people that are working in the fields um, right behind it. Stories of people in indentured servitude and stories of people that were trying to, to actually get their voice heard. May Day makes sure that those people are heard. And it allows a space for people uh, like myself even, like Andrea, Andrea, to just step back and say, this day's yours, you take the lead. Um, and I think that that history is really important. Um, the, the program, the way that it's structured is really important. We open up with, with a prayer from, Aztec dan uh, from the Aztec dancers, and that's really significant, especially um, as we, as, as immigrants too, we, we, get to, we get to own a piece of our indigenous past. Um, there's music that really resonates with the comunidad, and you know, I always say that it's not a movement without music and without art, so you have to have the music there. Um, and it always is centered and focused around an issue. And an issue that is controversial to some, but for, for us, that, that's us in our everyday lives. It's, it's what we live. Um, and it focuses on the stories of the, real, of the people that it's happening. Great, thanks. Anything to add? Okay, cool. no worries. I think uh, good, good team here. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm just curious, given the history of Mayday, um, is there any attributable sort of um, uh, contribution that the history of Mayday and its origins from the late 1900s or the late 1800s, uh, late 19th century, um, that still is kind of resonant um, mm -hmm. today with the movements that happen and the act, the day of action that happens both in Portland and in Salem. Mm -hmm. Well, in recent May Days, I mean, the original May Day was about achieving an eight-hour workday, but that wasn't enough, right? So each May Day, um, we have lifted up um, additional progress or another issue that we need um, to make our state a better place for workers and for all. And so um, prior May Days have really focused on increasing the minimum wage, achieving paid sick leave, um, and interracial profiling. I mean, we've become a lot more comprehensive about how we define economic justice and looking at workers in a more holistic way, um, not just as workers, but also people who 
um, are immigrants mm. or people who are LGBTQ or people who are women and each of those intersections bring um, different barriers and a different set of solutions. And so we've used May Day over the years to really lift up our legislative priorities um, as a way to gain visibility um, and commitment from elected leaders and also to show the kind of support the community has for those issues. Great. That's a good reminder. Um, when I think of all of the May Days in Salem that I've attended, um, I, it does bring back great memories of the historical gains and wins that we've been able to make and then lift up, obviously, as part of the May Day strategy um, with the, the big action that's on the Capitol mm -hmm. steps that you remember from, what, 2006? Oh, yeah. 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 And it's really interesting to me to also think about um, how some of our organizers in the, you know, in the past were demonized and, you know, kind of marked off as, as folks that were causing like a some kind of a negative style ruckus in the community when you know now when we when we think about how like conservatives kind of uh, identify our organizers and I kind of see some of those parallels too with uh with the way that that they try to negatively portray us in um in our marches and our protests and even in the in just the progressive movement in general um and that that's a really interesting kind of parallel that that I'm seeing. I mean, I think probably back then it was a little more violent, maybe not in, but in in some places, maybe in the United States, some of the protests maybe have gotten a little bit violent. But <laughs> but you know, that's it. That was an interesting parallel of what you were mentioning earlier for me at least it's interesting though because over the years we've gotten so good at organizing it and we've worked really closely with the city of salem to make it a peaceful day um, one of the things we are aware of is that if families don't feel like it's a safe place to bring their kids we're really going to have low participation uh, because so many f uh, people are family oriented and it really is a place for youngsters to come to volunteer to get involved in political action and so we've made it a point to ensure that it is a very safe environment where everybody's voices can be heard mm -hmm. great so uh, with the remaining few minutes I did want to um, just uh, kind of turn us towards uh, what's happening next week and what's happening this year and the uh, the thinking and the planning and the hard work that's gone into uh, having a great celebration uh, next Tuesday. Next. Right, so May yeah. 1st is next Tuesday. We're organizing a big event co-hosted by CAUSA and the Oregon School Employees Association who plans it with us every single year in addition to a long list of co-sponsors including Pacoon and the AFL-CIO among many others. This year we're really excited because we're going to have Governor Kate Brown sign two um, of our pro-immigrant and pro-dreamer bills. One bill that would reduce um, barriers to higher education for undocumented students, and the other which would extend driving privileges for temporary protective status and DACA recipients whose status has expired because the federal government has basically revoked those programs. And so we're really excited to have um, the, that bill signing there. We're also going to focus on, um, you know, the current attacks against unions. We're going to focus on um, defending Oregon's 30-year-old sanctuary law that's currently under attack, and we're going to focus on um, making sure that um, we have the, the resources needed to have good education for all. So um, in addition, actually, to one of our primary issues, 
which is uh, driver licenses for all. So there's a variety of really important issues we'll be covering um, and we invite everybody to attend. You can check out details at calsaoregon.org. Again, 11.30 at the state capitol. It's gonna be an awesome day. I'm ordering amazing weather <laughs> and it's, it's gonna be great. So we hope everyone can join us. That's great. So you did mention something that's really relevant for voters today. Um, IP22 is what the initiative that you referenced around an attack on immigrants, just a blatant anti-immigrant ballot measure that's circulating currently. Could you talk a little bit about the effort around uh, pushing back and defending uh, immigrant workers in the state and uh, the dynamics around the One Oregon Coalition? One of you. Sure. One of the key issues that voters may have to decide on this year is whether or not we keep our 30-year-old sanctuary law that was passed in 1987 that essentially says um, local law enforcement is restricted from collaborating with federal immigration agents. Um, and that law passed for very important reasons. One, local law enforcement was um, racially profiling Latino Americans because of the color of their skin, because they thought they were undocumented and they were wrongfully arresting people and working with federal immigration agents. And number two, they were wasting local resources on basically doing what the federal government should be doing. And so this law was passed in 1987, uh, right before I was born, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've had it for so many years. It's been a very important protection. Um, Oregon's the first state in the nation to pass such a statewide law. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until last year that places like California and Illinois passed statewide sanctuary laws as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a group uh, with ties to white supremacists. Their name is Oregonians for Immigration Reform, or OFER by their acronym. And they are on their way to collecting the signatures they need to place this law on the ballot for the midterm elections for voters to decide. And so here's a moment for Oregon voters to stand up and say, we want to remain a welcoming state, and we want to remain a state um, that does not invest resources in enforcing racist federal immigration policy. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be focusing a lot on that. One, to really educate voters, but just to really be very clear um, publicly that we're going to give it our all to defend this law. Great. And if somebody were interested in getting more information about that uh, initiative that's circulating, well, where would they go? Sure, they can check out uh, oneoregon.org, which is a coalition including Carlson, Pacoon, and, many, and 90 other organizations across the state labor unions, environmental groups, pro-choice groups coming together to defend Oregon sanctuary law. So we've actually got a pledge online that we're asking people to sign up for, pledge to vote no this November on IP22, and it's right on the One Oregon website. Great. So we're about out of time, but uh, before we wrap up, um, are there any final comments you'd like to leave listeners uh, with as we think about May Day, its significance historically, what it means for Oregon's movement around social and economic justice? Any final, final words? Final words for me um, are just come out and march with us. It's going to be an awesome day. It feels so good to be out there. And it will be amazing to, to just be together and stand in solidarity with um, immigrant workers. And it's going to be a good day. So be there or be square. Cool. Okay. Well, um, thanks so much to our very first guests on this show, Raina and Andrea. So again, thank you for being here. Um, so stay tuned for our next podcast episode in late May. And uh, once again, you've been listening to the Oregon AFL-CIO's new podcast, The Voice of Oregon's Workers. 